Let's pray together, and then we're going to look at several passages of Scripture. So keep your Bibles handy, and uh, we're going to be studying God's Word today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please be with us now, we ask. Please help us. Please work in our lives. Please come to us, we pray. Father, we just pray that you will help us to to really grasp, perhaps in a richer and deeper way than ever before, but certainly in a richer and deeper way. Help us to grasp what you have actually done for us in Christ Jesus, what, what this this all this means what you have done help us we pray just open our hearts to you and to who you are and what you've done bless and be with us now we come to you we come to you seeking your blessing seeking that we would grow in grace seeking that we would glorify and honor you in <clears throat> seeking that we would know you better so bless and help us now we pray and we ask this all in Jesus name Amen. <clears throat> My voice is struggling a little bit today. <clears throat> so I have to mix up my magical potion. Well, as you look around you right now, <clears throat> you see a Christmas tree, you see a lot of uh, festive flowers, you see uh, other trees over here, you see a manger, a couple sheep. The kids love to grab these sheep and run with them. I noticed that. <clears throat> and April's just done such a wonderful job here. And this is uh, to celebrate Christmas. And there are some Christians, <clears throat> well-meaning souls, who would look at all of this with disdain and say, well, this is pagan, that this actually has pagan roots, and that Christians shouldn't celebrate Christmas because it's pagan. And uh, the, the trees and the candles and all of that, even December 25th, the, uh, the, near the winter solstice, this is, this is all paganism. And my temptation when somebody says that to me is to stand there I resist the temptation, by the way. But my temptation when people say that to me is to stand there and to then go into a large, loud belly laugh. <laughs> Almost ho, ho, ho. <laughs> you are cracking me up. You know why? Number one, because there's no historical background whatsoever that any of this is pagan. Uh, there's no historical background that there was worship of that. Yes, people worshiped the summer, winter solstice, and yes, pagans had their, their gods. But then all of a sudden, a bully showed up on the block. And the bully that showed up on the block was Christianity. Christianity with this message of God's Son coming to earth. And when that message of God's Son coming to earth and God sending a Son and God's Son dying on our behalf and our sins being forgiven, when that message permeated paganism in Europe, then the pagans said, we're going to celebrate Him. We're going to worship Him. We're going to honor Him. And that's what happens. And so please don't, don't be influenced by these timid souls. I'm, these timid souls who say, oh, I'm afraid of paganism. Oh, I can't do paganism. This is not paganism. Now, if you bring a Christmas tree into your house and then you start bowing down to it and say, oh, great Christmas tree, answer my prayers. Oh, great Christmas tree, I worship and honor you. That's paganism. 
That's not what we do, okay? And so Christianity is so rich, it's so amazing, its story is so pervasive and so powerful that it tends to take over. And as I shared with you the last couple of weeks, I've been, I've been tracking through some of these uh, atheists who are now becoming Christians and how, and how watching the decay of secular society and seeing what the fruits of what they've believed in so long now coming to fruition in our society and how our society is decaying into a new dark ages, they're rediscovering Christianity because it's so powerful. And this is what I want to look at today. I want us to begin to look at this, this powerful message of what, of what God has done in Christ. So look with me in Luke chapter 1. We're not going to go into detail on these passages. We're actually going to look at some other passages in Scripture. But let's begin here. Luke chapter 1. Uh, a, a, a young teenage virgin is, is there, and an angel, Gabriel, comes, and he's speaking to her. And in verse 31, he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son... And shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What a strange passage. This, 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 this little young teenage virgin, and the angel says, you're going to have a baby. And she says, problem, we have a problem. I don't know a man. He says, this is going to be a miraculous virgin birth. And this baby is going to be your son. You're going to name him Jesus. It's going to be a little baby. He's going to need to nurse. He's going to need to sleep. He's going to need to have his diaper change. He's going to need to grow. But he's also going to be called the son of the highest. And he's going to be a forever king. And he's going to take over the throne of David. And he's going to be the promised Messiah. Then flip over to chapter 2 and look at verse 8. It says, now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields. Now the baby's been born, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now catch the scene. These cowboys are out there. These, 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 they're camping out. They're watching their sheep. An angel appears to them in this bright light. They're afraid. He says, don't be afraid. And he says, listen, over there in Bethlehem, a Savior, the Savior has been born. And he is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. He's over there in Bethlehem. But let me just give you a, a, a hint of how you can find him. Look at the next verse. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. It's like, wait a minute. So the king, the Messiah, the Savior is born. He's over there. But you're going to have to start looking through barns. You're going to have to look at hay racks. You're going to have to look and see if you can find him. And the way you'll find him is not he's got this halo or not that he's shining or not that there's angels worshiping in, around. No, you guys go search every barn. You look for a hay rack and go look in every hay rack. Wherever you smell cow, wherever you see sheep, start looking in hay racks. And you're going to find him wrapped up in a cloth. What a, what a crazy story. What a wild, wild story. And then, verse 13, there's a huge multitude, a huge army of angels in heaven singing and praising and glorifying God. Wise men show up in Jerusalem and say, where is he? Where is he? Where's the great king? Where's the Messiah? Where is he? Herod freaks out and sends soldiers to Bethlehem and slaughters every two year, every boy under the age of two. 
what is going on here? What is it with this story? How, why is this happening? What led to all of this? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at what led to all of this happening. Remember, we've been studying the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, Paul keeps focusing on this mystery that has now been revealed, this mystery, which is Christ, this mystery that was planned in the mind of God before the foundation of the world and now is being revealed to the apostles and prophets through Christ Jesus, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what we're going to look at this morning. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to go through our Bibles and look at actually some very familiar passages, and it's good that we look at these familiar passages again. They're familiar, they're, they're popular, as it were, they're important. It's good to go back and, and reread them and, and re-meditate on them and re-believe them, and that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to do this under four headings, because we're going to look at what God the Father's role was in, was in all of this. And we're going to look this under four words, gave, sent, made, and spare. Now, the last one would actually be spare not. Gave, sent, made, and spare not. And kids, if you, I'd really like you kids to follow along in the Bible. And if you would like to use a pew Bible, or if you're new here, if you're here and you're new to the Bible and you don't know your way around, I'm going to give the page number of every place that we're going to be looking that's in the pew Bible. So you can just pull the pew Bible out if you'd like. So let's all turn, first of all, to John chapter 3. And this, if you're using the pew Bible, will be page 1,223. 1,223. John chapter 3. <clears throat> And verse 16. And the first word that we're going to be focusing on is the word gave. The word gave. John 3.16, very familiar to most of you. You probably have it memorized. says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his son. God gave his son to the world. This is what this is. This is the word gave. And who is God's son? Well, as you look in the passage, it says this. He gave his only begotten son. Sadly, many new translations drop the word begotten. That's a fad. That's a terrible fad. It will end soon. The newer translations, the newer new translations are starting to realize that that word actually needs to be in there, that that word is actually the literal word. And it's the word that is tied in with this idea of family. It's a family tie word. He is God gave his only begotten son. Who is God's only begotten son? How can God have a son? What does that mean? Well, on the screen, it, we're going to show Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 3. And, and, and this passage opens that up very well. It says this, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the worlds. Now, this is the phrase I want us to focus on. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Now, now back up one verse, guys. Can you back up one verse? There you go. 
Yeah. Notice verse 3 there where it says, who being the brightness of his glory. What does it mean that Jesus is God's son? What does it mean that, the tr that, that, that God, the eternal God, has a son? How can that be? That, that there certainly wasn't a time when God the son was born because the Bible says that God the son is also God. He's timeless as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. God the Son is as timeless as God the Father. Well, how is He His Son? Well, the book of Hebrews says this. He is the brightness of His glory. He is the radiance of His glory. He is the shining forth of His glory. He is one with Him, but, but the, the triune God is so complex and so powerful and so amazing and so huge that, in a sense, He bursts out. And the best way to illustrate this is to think of our sun, S-U-N, that's, that's in the sky. Our sun that is in the sky, the sun is there, and it is this cauldron of, 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 of nuclear reactions and, 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 and fire and burning that is going on, and it is constantly radiating out. There was never a time when the sun was just there, uh, shut off, as it were, not radiating. The very nature of the sun is that it radiates power, and it radiates power all around, radiating, radiating, radiating the brightness of its glory. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying Jesus is. Jesus is the radiance. He's the, he's the radiating out of the Father. He's, he's the shining forth from the Father. He's coming out of the Father. And, and that's, what the, that's what it means that he is his son. But then notice the next phrase there. He is the express image of his person. He is the express image of his person. So just as a sunbeam is, the, is, is, is one with the sun, it's, it's the radiation of the sun, he is also the express image of his person. In other words, and you can't use this phrase with God, but, but, but think of it like this, the, the, it's one DNA. I and the Father are one. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is, he is the, the family bond is there. That's why only begotten is such an important word. There, there's a family bond there. There is a, a mysterious oneness, a mysterious glory, a mysterious radiance, a mysterious image bearing. He is the exact image of his father. He's the father's son in that sense. And the Bible teaches that there is this amazing love between the father and his son. An amazing love. The father delights in his son. He delights in him. He's the express image of his being. He's the radiance of his glory. When he looks upon his son, he sees pure holiness. He sees God. He sees deity. He sees the beauty of holiness. He sees perfection. He sees all of his glory. And he delights in his son. He delights in, in the nearness and the oneness and the relationship. And it's a mysterious, glorious, wonderful relationship. And when Jesus takes on human flesh and leaves the side of the Father and comes to earth and takes on human flesh and he's walking on the earth, there's two times in which God the Father just bursts forth with expression about his son and people standing around heard it. One was at Jesus' baptism. Lauren's going to follow Jesus. One of them is Jesus' baptism. When Jesus is baptized, this voice booms out of heaven and says, This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Now, that's real biblical language. That's King James language. But that's God saying, I love him. I really, really love him. He's my heart. He's my heart. Jesus comes out of the water of baptism, and God says, he's my very heart. 
And the other one is on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus shines forth the hidden glory. He shines it forth. That radiance comes out. Peter and John, they're on the ground. A cloud comes over just to protect them. And the father says, this is my beloved son. I love him. I love this son. I delight in him. With whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And dear ones, we can't even begin to imagine the bond of love and unity and commitment between father and son. It's a relationship that is older than time. It is billions and billions and billions of years old. Before time began and even then eternal, it was eternal then. The father delights in the son. The son delights in the father. The father's whole heart is wrapped up in the son. And that's what gives power to a verse that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Can we even imagine what it means for God to give such a gift? That's why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, 15 at one point just bursts out, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Well, that's the word give. But, but what does that mean that God gave his only begotten son? Well, look at the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's giving has a reason. And the reason is that we wouldn't perish, but that we would have everlasting life. So the second word we're going to look at, which is associated with, is the word sent. And you actually see it in the next verse. Look at verse 17. For God did not send, there's our word, his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now notice here, sending has a mission, it has a purpose. Now turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. And if you're trying to, if you're following along in the Pew Bible, that is page 1401. 1401. And notice what John says now in 1 John, and notice how this idea of Jesus being sent, the Father sending his Son, is highlighted here. Verse 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God. Remember that phrase, by the way. Born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. Look at that again. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Now, the word sent there, by the way, the word sent there means this. This is, what, this is how it's described in the Greek lexicon, the Greek dictionary. To dispatch someone for the achievement of an objective. That's what the word sent, that word that's used by John there means. To dispatch someone for the achievement of an objective. Sounds like a military term, doesn't it? To dispatch someone for the achievement of an objection. God sent his son to achieve an objective. An objective. And in the context, we're actually given two objectives. They're, they're tied in. Notice the first one in verse uh, 9. In this the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent 
his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him, that we might live through him, that we might have life through him, that we might be born again, for instance, through him. That's what verse 7 means when, Paul's, when John says, we have been born of God that we might have everlasting life through him. John 3, 6, turning, that we would not perish, that we would have life through him. Now, why do we need God to send his son into the world in order that we might live, in order that we might have life? Well, the answer is, is because we are, by nature, through sin, dead. Remember Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. We were studying, we've been studying Ephesians, and there Paul says, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now leave this verse up, guys, because I'm going to re refer to this a couple times here. Notice here that the human being is described as dead. We, are, we were dead in trespasses and sins. That's what it means to, to not have life in you, is that you're dead, especially dead toward the things of God. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you tried to interest somebody who's not interested you tried to interest somebody in having a conversation with you about God. Now, these people don't really care about God. You love them. You want them to get saved. And so you say, hey, could, I'd like to have a conversation with you about God. And they were like, and at that point, don't, haven't you found in that situation, they don't want to have that conversation. No, they don't want to have that conversation. You see, it's amazing because people are actually dead toward God. They're dead toward God. They, they're, they're, they're lifeless in terms of God. They need life from God. And so if you try to get them interested in trying to get them to talk about God, they don't want to talk about God. But they're crazy interested in talking about all kinds of other things. Like they'll talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about all the things. They'll go on and on and on. They're very, very interested, very, very interested about things. Now, I'm interested in fly fishing. So I might talk to somebody. I'll be talking to them about fly fishing. And we might get into the intricacies of fly tying. We might get into things of, of different ha uh, feathers and of different things and different hooks and all this kind of thing. And we'll talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Or maybe somebody's really into cars. Or maybe they're into tractors. Or maybe they're into anything. Eyeshadow, food, recipes, anything. And all of a sudden, you say to them, hey, can we take a pause right now and talk about God? And it gets really weird, doesn't it? It gets really weird. It gets really silent. And then you say, no, no, seriously, I, I want to have a talk about God. In fact, I'd like to talk to you about how all of your sins could be forgiven. I'd like to talk to you about how you can have eternal life. I'd like to talk to you about how if you die, you don't have to be afraid because you'll go straight to heaven. Let's talk about that. And if you're dead toward God, you know what your response is? Why do you always have to bring God up? We were just having a great conversation here about fly fishing and cars and tractors and eyeshadow and, and, and food and, and, and things like that. Why do you have to be such a bummer? Why do you have to bring this up? And you say, wait a minute. I'm trying to talk to you about some amazing stuff. Wouldn't you like to know that when you died, you went to heaven? Wouldn't you like to know that all of your past is washed and cleansed? Wouldn't you like to know that God loved you? No. And you're driving me nuts. And I'm not sure how long this relationship will last if you keep bringing up this God stuff. No, I'm not interested. No, I don't want to talk about it. No, I have no concern for that whatsoever. I have a lot of concern in this stuff. No concern for that. That's what it means to be dead toward God. And you know what's wild? God, look at the verse. God sent his son, verse 9, his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. 
I am going to send my son into the world with the object that he would bring life to these dead people. I need to send my son into the world to get these people to even want to talk about me. Does that, does that seem weird? Like crazy? That seems crazy to me. Like, what would you do if you had somebody in your life who had no interest in you whatsoever? None. They don't want to talk about you. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to be with you. They don't have anything to do with you. As far as they're concerned, they don't even care if you die. They have no interest in you whatsoever. Would you send your son into the world in order that they might have the life that would enable them to have a relationship with you. But that's what God did. And that's what John is getting at here. Look at verse 9. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And that's one objective. We would live through him. God sent his son on a mission, the objective that we would live through him. Verse 10 is the second objective. Look at verse 10. In this is love... Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Mission number two. Objective number two in the mission, I mean. Be a propitiation. Be a propitiation. My son, I'm sending you to be the propitiation. Well, what in the world is a propitiation? A propitiation is, the word propitiation means to appease. And by appease, that means, propitiation means that when there's a broken relationship and there's anger, somebody does something to mend the relationship and take away the source of anger. I'll illustrate this for you. Imagine you owned a car. It's not a great car. It's not a fancy car, but it's your car, and you paid for it, and you worked hard to pay for it, and you like your car. You like your car. You're comfortable with it. You got it just the way you like. And you parked your car in front of your house one day on the street. You parked your car, and then you went in the house, and while you were in the house, you heard crash. And you look out the window, and here's that old neighbor of yours who, by the way, you're, you've been thinking for a long time, this guy shouldn't even have a driver's license. He backs out of his driveway and smashes so hard into your car, your car is totaled. Totaled. You go looking out there at your car, and you're like, what in the world? What's the matter with you? Who even gave you a license? What is it? Oh. And you go walking back in the, in the house. I said, what's the matter? What's the matter? My car is totaled. My car is, my car is, I love that car. My car is totaled. I hate that old man. Nobody, they should have taken his license a long time ago. Why would people, but I hate that old man. The next day comes and you're, you get your car towed away. And they say, yeah, this thing is junk, man. They towed away. And you're sitting, in, you're sitting in, the, in your house the next day and you hear beep, beep, beep. Beep, beep, something backing up. Beep, beep, beep. And you look out, and here comes this truck backing up, and the guy stops, he gets out, and he gets on in a brand new sports car. He drives it down the ramp, and he parks it right in front of your house. And then, he, and then you're watching out the window. Oh, man, brand new sports car, look at that thing. And he walks up to your driveway. He walks up your sidewalk, knocks on your door, and says, hey, man, here's your keys. And you say, wait a minute, dude. There's no way I can afford that car. You're, you've got a mistake. That ain't my car. If I take that, I'll be thievery. I can't, I can't. He said, no, 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 it's, it's paid for. Here, it's your car. Here, look, here's title and everything. Here, here it is. See you later, man. I got to get out of here. I got another delivery. Boom, he's gone. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who bought this car? He said, oh, that old guy across the street. Now, you have been propitiated. You're like, I love that guy, man. 
That dude is amazing. He is the nicest guy in the world. I can't believe what he has done. You've been propitiated. Now, we got a problem, though, don't we? Who does the bad things in verse 10? We do. Who propitiates when you do bad things? Well, the guy who did the bad thing. If I wreck your car in order to propitiate and appease you and make, take away your anger toward me, I'd buy you a new car. But in this verse, God doesn't need to be propitiated in that, in that sense. God doesn't need that we need. We, we have sinned against God. We have broken God's law. We have, we have committed these trespasses. We need God. We need to do something. And God propitiates for us. God sends his son to propitiate for him on our behalf. You say, what do you mean? How does that work? Well, Henry, you gave me this illustration, so I'm going to give Henry the... Although he told me he got off the internet, but Henry is a genius at illustrations. But he gave me this illustration. Imagine a judge, and a judge is standing there, and he's at an order in a court. And somebody comes up, and this person has done a really bad crime, and the judge sentences him. He says, I'm going to sentence you. This was bad. You shouldn't have done this. You're going to be fined, and I sentence you a $30,000 fine. Boom. Done. Then the judge gets up, walks down the platform, on, and stands next to the defendant because the defendant is his son. And the judge takes out his own checkbook and writes a $30,000 check on behalf of his son, in order to pay the son's fine. So now the court has been propitiated. But the judge actually paid the propitiation. And this is what John is saying here. Here is love. Here is love. God's anger against our sin. And God's legal angry against us because of all that we have done. God sends his own son to die on behalf of our sins. To propitiate his wrath. His anger. His broken justice. God offers his son to be the propitiation. And that's what it means that God sent his son. That's why this is, this is this idea of God sending his son into the world. Now let's look at the third one then. Well, how does this propitiation thing work? Let's look at the third one. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18. This is found on page 1,330 if you're following along in, uh, your, in the uh, Pew Bible. 1,330, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18. Notice what Paul says here. And the word we're looking at here is the word made, made. Notice what it says here, verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There's that whole propitiation thing and all that's tied up in there. By not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then... We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, here's the verse. For he made, there's our word, him, God the Father made him, God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, look at that verse. It's powerful. It's so packed. God made him sin 
In other words, God took all of our guilt. All See, when you sin, when you sin, it's like committing a crime. When you sin, you're, you're, you, you, that brings you immediately under guilt. It brings you immediately under the liability of condemnation, the liability of punishment. When you sin, it's like committing a crime. It's like committing a crime. And, 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 and you're guilty, and, and when a person commits a crime, then that involves, you know, going to, getting arrested and, and going to court and getting sentenced and getting punished. And that whole rubric comes under us when we sin. We are, we are, we are, we are, we're guilty before God, and we, and we have that hanging over us. And we're, you, you've probably heard of the statement, he's, he's wanted in four states. Well, dear ones, we're, we're, we're sinners against God. And so that's cosmic sin. We're wanted in the entire universe, like wherever we go in the universe, we're, we're under this condemnation. We're wanted in that sense. And we have what, what legal people call culpability, culpability. Listen to what culpability is. Culpability is the degree of one's blameworthiness in the commission of a crime. And it's the responsibility for wrongdoing. And so they'll say, you are culpable. You are responsible. You, are, you must be punished. You must bear the punishment. Prisoners say, if you've done the crime, you do the time. And that's the idea. You, you have that sort of culpability. And what this is saying is this. God took all of our culpability and all of our guilt and all of our condemnation and all of our liability to him because of our sin and place that on his son. Now listen very carefully. Jesus didn't become sinful. Jesus was made a sin bearer that was imputed upon him. Jesus took on all of the culpability and all of the responsibility. God laid that upon his son and God punished him. He punished sin on his son, his beloved son, his eternal son, his son who is the express image of his being, his son who is the brightness of his glory. He laid all of that on him and he punished him and he took all of his son's righteousness and he laid that upon us. He imputed that toward us. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, verse 21, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Notice the righteousness. It's the righteousness of God in him. That has been then given to us. It has been transferred to us. And then God, after he does that, then God sends forth the message, be reconciled to me. What an amazing God. What an amazing God. Let's get to the final one. Spare not. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. That's found on page 1301 if you're following in the Pew Bible. And kids, you better be following the Pew Bible. Or you're culpable of my wrath. And it's going to be very hard to appease that. No, you probably just smile at me and I'm appeased. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to translate this a little bit different than the New King James because there's some nuances in the Greek that's very hard to get out of the English. So I'm going to translate it. So follow along in your, in your Bible, but listen to what I say. Verse 32. He did not even, he did not even spare his very own son. That's how Paul wrote it. 
he did not even spare his very own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God did not spare his very own son. The word spare, of course, means to hold back from harm, to hold back from trouble, to preserve from harm, to preserve from danger. And there's a lot of parents here right now, and there's a lot of parents with younger children here right now. And you know that as soon as that little one was put in your hands, as soon as that little one uh, was became yours, this deep, instinctive feeling came to protect them. And you've had that your whole life. Where's Johnny? Where's Johnny? Where's Susie? Where's she at? Where's she at? Uh, stay, away, stay away from the car. Stay away from the car. Here, hold my hand. Hold my hand. Hold my hand. Hold me. Watch out. That's hot. That's hot. That's hot. No, no, don't do that. No, no, no. You might get hurt. No, just stay back. This, this desire to spare them from hurt, to spare them from pain, to spare them from trouble, to spare them from anguish, that instinctive thing God didn't do. God spared not. God did not spare his very own son. Dear ones, think about this. Right now in Gaza, right now in Ukraine, and right now in Myanmar, there is terrible things happening. We know of a group of orphan kids whose parents have all been killed by the war in Myanmar. They're being held in a little orphanage with bomb shelters and they're being evangelized and they're being fed. We're trying to feed them, trying to clothe them. Our missionaries are there working and doing this. And, those, and, and, and bombs are heard in the background. And these little boys and little girls, and these little girls, and some of them are a little older, uh, there's, there's, there's troops of both armies all around them. And it's like, it's like every, every day I almost don't want to open up the email. Dear ones, could you imagine? Think of all the little baby boys around here right now. Think of all the little babies. But I, th- I say boys because of Jesus. Think about the little baby boys right now, you know. A little Asher, little, little, little Levi, little, you know, these little baby boys right now. There's, there's Callie out here, and then there's Knox over there, and there's all these little baby boys. Could you imagine sending them to Gaza? Could you imagine sending them to the Ukraine? Could you imagine putting them in that orphanage in, 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 in Myanmar? Could you imagine putting them in that danger? But that's what God, he did. He sent his son. He sent his son. He gave his son. And Herod butchers them. I was, I was at Dave's concert last night, and I was watching little Santino. And little Santino was just dancing away. He was just dancing uh, to, to this music. And he was dancing. And I'm sitting there looking at little Santino, and I, and, 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 and I was thinking about how the son of God became this little, this little guy like that and, and how Jesus came and God sent his son. And then I thought, and then I realized, you know, I was thinking of Santino in, in Bethlehem and, and, and Dominic and Brady just, just hiding him and, and trying to get out of town while Herod was butchering all of the kids Santino's age. And I thought, God sent his son into this to save us, his beloved son. And then notice it says here, look at the verse that says here, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That word delivered means to hand over to the authorities. It means to hand over to the executioners. It means to hand somebody over. Sometimes it's actually used betrayal. It's used of Judas. 
to hand somebody over to those who can then execute their will upon him, and he's helpless. God did not spare his own son, but handed him over. Now think about this, dear ones. Think about this. Think about a parent wanting to protect his child, the, the parental desire and love, and then think about an eternal relationship, and think about a perfect love, and think about the oneness between father and son, and think about the fact that the father spared not the son. Now go with me in your head to Gethsemane. Go to Gethsemane in your head. What is the son doing? He's laying in the sand, pleading and begging, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through this pain. I don't want to be executed. I don't want to fall under your wrath. Please, Father, remove this cup from me. And the father spared not his own son. I, 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 can't even, I can't even fathom this. The father spared not his own beloved son. And then the beloved son made himself, if he, he could use his language, even more beloved. Nevertheless, father, not my will, but your will. Because I love your will even more than my will. The father spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. God gave up his son. God gave his son to the executioners. God watched his son being executed. God watched his son being tormented and tortured and, and laughed at and jeered and nailed and, and crown of thorns and, and dying and breathing and agonizing and terrible pain. And the father spared not. Spared not. Spared not. Why spared not? Why does it say spared not? Because he was a father. He wanted to spare. He wanted to spare. He wanted to spare. But he spared him not. Why? So that we would live. So that we would be forgiven because of his great love for us. He's demonstrating his love for us. Dear ones, that is what is behind Christmas. That's what starts this whole thing, is the Father's amazing love. He gave his son. He sent his son. He made his son sin. He spared not his son in order that we would live, in order that we would be forgiven, in order that we would have eternal life. In order that our dead souls would come to life and say, oh God, I do want to know you. I do need you. I Please forgive me. I am interested in you. I want to have a relationship with you. Oh, God had to get us to that point, And he did it through his son. And then God could say to us, I forgive you now. I adopt you as my son. Why? Because God gave, God sent, God made, God spared, not his son. Oh, dear ones, as you're looking at Christmas, as you're thinking of Christmas, as you're thinking of this little baby being born so helpless, so defenseless, being born, the Lord of the universe, the very Son of God, the one through whom universes and the world was made, the one who sustains the world, is now this teeny little baby. What is this? This is God giving his son. This is God expressing his love. This is God showing his great love. This is God saying, I want to be reconciled to my enemies. This is God saying, I want you to come to heaven with me. This is God saying, my heart is so big that it includes my beloved son. And it includes you. 
and I'm going to put you in union with my son, and I'm going to delight and be in love with you as well for the rest of eternity. Dear ones, dear ones, give your heart to God in thankfulness. And dear ones, this is a God who can be trusted. You can trust this God. If God is for us, who can be against us? You can trust this God. Is there any here today who you don't know God? You don't have a relationship with God. You have never come to God and experienced him. You're one of those people who has just been so interested in everything else. You didn't want to talk about God. You didn't even want to come to church today. But now God has talked to you. And God is saying to you, I offer my son for people like you. Here's my son. He's the propitiation. He died upon the cross. He embodies forgiveness. He embodies eternal life. He embodies it all. I sent my son on a mission to purchase all of this so that I can now freely offer it to all of you. Come to my son. Believe upon my son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Lauren came to believe in Jesus Christ, and she has everlasting life. She's been born anew, and she's been raised from the dead, and she's going to symbolize that now in this water. Oh, oh, God is calling everyone here today. Come and trust in him. Find salvation in the Son. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you so much that you have given us your son. There is no words beyond us, but thank you that you have given us your son. Thank you that you sent him. Thank you, Father. You are so full of love. You are love. Thank you for giving us life through your son, eternal life. Thank you. We thank you and we praise you. And if there are any who are calling upon you now, if there are any who are saying, I need you, and I, 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 I come to you, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Oh, hear their prayer, we pray. Save them. Draw them to yourself, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.